There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare. Plushcare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a broadcaster and a writer, but for the purposes of this podcast, I'm your chief investigator of images. It's a doubly exciting day for me today. I'm joined by one of my favourite authors who I think, I've been, I think I've been telling you that I love your work for a long time. I'm joined by Kate Moss. <laughs> it's true. We've been Twitter friends and all of that for quite a long time. We've never actually met. So here we are, which is brilliant. <laughs> I mean, it's a double pleasure because we're in a room together. And for the first time in all of my Art Detective podcasts, we're doing a building. We're doing architecture. Good. Well, I didn't realise that. I have owned up uh, to being not very good with actual art. And this is awful because my daughter works in this field. Um, oh, does she? Yeah, what no, does she, she do? Does. She is the operations executive and studio manager for the Alexander McQueen Foundation Saraband. Gosh. So she knows stuff, uh, you know, a lot about sculpture and craft and fashion and and, and art. <laughs> and I just am hopeless. And when I was trying to think of a, a favourite painting, I kept saying, oh, you know, that one with the, you know, the blue one, you know. <laughs> and we decided, I, I thought buildings, I've got to do a building. It's just safer, <laughs> safer. But, but I think it's absolutely wonderful because we forget in the discipline of art history that it's a, it's a many-pronged beast. <laughs> and architecture is a huge part of it, particularly because... Because of all the biggest expressions of creativity and and human ingenuity, buildings are the the, the best expression of that, and they they are communal spaces where people come together and, and live in a you exactly. know and, and experience a communal exactly. space. Exactly, and also you know back in the day, the times of that I write about mostly, people didn't you know the the rich people, the courts and the generals and all of those people. They had art on their walls and they looked at paintings and commissioned paintings of themselves. But for most normal people, ordinary people, they saw beauty in a church. Exactly. You know, that's the thing. And they saw images on those walls. And, and of course, churches were much more colourful in the medieval period you know, than we think of them. We think of them as being grey or sort of sandstone. But they were colourful places. And that's, for most people, what gave their joy you know the joy in life so I so for me it's always a building and it's almost always a church you know that Philip Larkin poem that I always have to stop and I always have to go into a church if a door is open that will be where I go I'm exactly the same (laughs) we have that in common but you're right and also of course there is this idea that yeah they might not have an awful lot of colour or art in their in their environment but every single week 
without fail, they would be in these stunningly, uh, very polychromatic spaces, aren't they, medieval churches? Exactly, exactly. It's one of the things when I was writing an earlier one of my novels, Labyrinth, um, and there were some scenes set at Chartres and Chartres Cathedral. And I knew Chartres, it was almost the first place I ever went to outside of the UK because it's twinned with my home city of Chichester. Um, I did not know that. Did you not know that, (laughs) Professor? Uh, Yeah, so there we are. So I... um, And that was the thing that I, you know, I read the guidebook and I love guidebooks. And they said in there, and you can see some of the polychromatic paints and colours that were still there on the south door. And of course, the minute they'd said that, it was, it just blew my mind, the idea that cathedrals in medieval France, many of them had been painted on the outside too. And of course, when I looked, I could see these traces of paint. Um, And it totally changed what I thought about that sense of colour in the landscape and what uh, people going about their business, living in a city, would w- would see. And I'd always thought, well, spires, of course, they you see a spire from miles away. They tell you you're coming to the heart of a city or a town or even a village, particularly in France and also in the UK. But then the idea that you'd be assaulted by colour as well, this this always stayed with me and, and, and changed how I related to those spaces, I think. Yeah, I think this is this is something we constantly have, well, I constantly have to do in my job when I'm explaining to people that the medieval period is not everybody wearing brown yeah, yeah, socks right, yes. and sort of piling mud yeah, on yeah, each exactly. other like once a <laughs> yes, 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 I lived in rural, you know. No, exactly, that's it. And it's always that thing, isn't it, that the, the story, I mean, you do this so brilliantly, but it's the story of history that we get told, which is not necessarily how it was to be living then or seeing things Well, then. this is what I think you do so wonderfully, Kate, because, of course... You know, we are here to celebrate the wonderful success of your latest novel, um, Burning Chambers. But it's doing brilliantly, isn't it? It's doing really doing nice. really well. <laughs> <laughs> it was number one, wasn't it? Oh, yes, it was number one for a few weeks. And that was a joyous thing because although we all know it doesn't really matter and we all say it doesn't really matter, the truth is there is nothing quite like it. I've seen that little number. And it's also that thing about sharing your work. You know, I live in a... I live in my hometown of Chichester. I live in a, a place where people are not all working in publishing or they're not all writers and all this sort of stuff. And it's just one of those things. It's lovely when you walk down the street and people go, morning, well done, morning. Sorry <laughs> <laughs> in the paper, yeah. well yes, done. And when my lovely ma and dad were still um, alive, this is the first book that I've published without either of being there to do it. But my mum was shameless. So she w- she has, you know... Absolutely, within seconds of being anywhere, whether it was a cafe or a shop, she would have said, do you know my daughter is born? <laughs> so I have to do it for myself now. <laughs> it's, a, it's a mother's prerogative. My mum's the only person that does it to me. She's yeah, awful. Yeah. <laughs> I was once, I had, this is just a, a little anecdote, but I'd bought a, bought a nice handbag, it broke, and I was being awfully, frightfully sweet in this shop, saying, I'm really sorry the handbag broke. And my, this woman was not helping me at all. And my mum had to say, do you know who she is? I was like, no, they don't. And nobody does. Just leave it. <laughs> but that's what mums do. <laughs> that's what we need, you see. So but that's—I mean, I think you're right as well that this idea that uh, you know you're you're in Chichester, you're you're in a wonderfully historic town. Yes, I adore absolutely. Chichester. Yes, yes. And and in a place like that, time moves in a different way. But also, history's all around you. And has that sort of influenced what what you've chosen to write about? Then, absolutely, it has. Because I think that growing up, you know, I write. All of my fiction is inspired by landscape and it's inspired by that connection of the history and the landscape. So when I'm in Carcassonne of southwest France, which is where I mostly write about and obviously the bird, it is ever the Is it not the most amazing It is. And, you know, the first time I went there, it was exactly that experience of uh, arriving in this town, 1989. It wasn't a place that was... I knew at all. We were there for a reason of bizarre sort of 
you know, circumstances. But walking through the Bastide, the modern town, which is 14th century, um, and <laughs> arriving on the Pont Vieux and seeing the medieval citadel ahead on the hill on the other side of the river. And it was a coup de foudre. I just fell head over heels in love. And more than that, I thought, oh, I belong here. And I had this incredible sense of belonging. But, of course, as I've thought about that over the years, I realised that it's exactly as you say, growing up in Chichester, where, as children, we walked through the town, past the 15th century market cross. It's probably not 15th century, is it 16th century? You would know. The market cross, <laughs> yes, which is in the middle. <laughs> yes, east, you know, which separates east, west, north and south street. Mm. Past the cathedral, um, the you know, one of the only British cathedrals, possibly the only one with a separate bell tower. And we did our end of year school concerts, all the local primary schools, in the cathedral. You know, and so you realise that you see history as a living thing. It's not about going to a museum. It's about where you go about your daily business. And for me, the sort of books I write is about hearing the whisper in the landscape and hearing the whisper in history. You that know. Is a, that's absolutely wonderful. I completely get the same feeling. Mm. I mean, I, I'm also a rural girl with from, from you know, our, our British landscape and cities and villages all have so much history in them. Yes. But you're right, it's not about seeing art and culture and history tucked away in a gallery, a white mm. cube. It's about walking through them as a child and experiencing yes. them. And then, and you knowing, for me, it's all, it's what the wonderful Neil McGregor, um, who, you know, wrote, well, I mean, obviously he was the director the British Museum, but he wrote this wonderful series about the history of the world and 100 objects. But he calls it the charisma of things. And that's exactly what I remember as a child, you know, standing there with my violin and your legs are always cold because in those days girls all had to wear skirts and we had to wear, you know, knee-length socks and it was always blooming freezing in the cathedral. Um, but that sense of you put your hand out onto a pillar and you know that thousands of people going back to the 12th century, have put their hand on that pillar. And it's that, for me, that's why I write what I... I'm not a historian, I'm just a storyteller, but it's that connection with the past, which is through objects and it's th through place. Kate, it's like you've crawled inside my mind. Hooray! <laughs> exactly how I see the world. <laughs> but, but going back to these medieval churches, you get that so strongly, don't you? And I think that um, we, we were talking about polychrome, we were talking about these spaces as being colourful and lived in. And and you're right, you know, there's places like Durham Cathedral where you can see the paint still yeah. in the columns. And it, it makes you think, gosh, these places actually would have been quite garish and bright. Yeah. Now, we've you've picked a particular beautiful building, which of course would have been garrison bright and actually has survived pretty well. Do you yes. want to say what you've chosen? Yes, I have chosen and anyone who's read The Burning Chambers will not be surprised because a great deal of it is set in Toulouse, um, wonderful former Roman city of Toulouse down in the southwest of France and I've chosen the Église du Tour um, and it gets its name, the whole street, um, which is the Rue du Tour, gets its name from... Uh, was this true or not, a martyrdom of Saint-Saturnin um, who was dragged along this street to where the Basilica now is um, behind a bull. I mean, was obviously martyred and dead and all the rest of it. And then because it became a shrine, the Basilica was built over this for a shrine. It became more and more popular and it's now the Basilica Saint-Saturnin. But the street retains the, the name of Toro for the bull, um, the French word for a bull. But I love this particular church because firstly, almost all the rest of the street 
is domestic houses and shops now. But there it is, you know, semi-detached, nestled in. So it has no sides. You can't walk around it. And that's so rare um, for that. And it has this amazing Western front facade with these amazing mitres, but it's very, very flat. Um, so it almost looks like it's a sketch there. And I love that when you see it. You first see it and you think, that is really peculiar frontage to this church. <laughs> and you go in and it would have been very wonderful. It was mainly rebuilt in the 13th and the 14th century and then there's this wonderful naves and there you know obviously the up the sides is slightly different sort of French uh, way of doing churches from the English church but at the back they then added things on at the back and there were these odd uh, chapels behind it and a little chapel behind the altar and so I always found it really peculiar because it feels like the altar is sort of floating um, in this odd arc of a different sort of building and it's very dusty inside now and not it doesn't feel a loved place it doesn't feel a, a church that people are using in quite the same sort of way but within it I immediately think just imagine all the people who knelt here and then you turn and you look on the south wall and there is this extraordinary 14th century mural of the family tree of Jacob um, and it's very flat. It, it looks sort of gothic almost, the painting there. It, it doesn't look at all like often you see in French churches in the south. You see the mixture of the Romanesque and the gothic and then you see lots of hung paintings that are gold framed and things. And this is very flat. It looks, you know, almost as like it's a cave painting, I suppose. And I just love it because... It, Toulouse is a glamorous city. Mm. It had an enormous renaissance in the 19th century. Place du Capitole, which the street leads off, is an amazing, very, you know, big determined thing. And, of course, it's known as La Vie Rose. And when the light strikes, it's a pink city. Mm. And it's a glamorous city. But this little church, it just, you think, oh, the stories you could tell. And it has the Lady of the Ramparts, which is this extraordinary sort of sculpture. And the... The rumour is, I mean, I don't know if it's true, that the weird chapel between the chapels was built to house the Shroud of Caduin that had been brought from Antioch to Toulouse in 1392 and then disappeared. And it's been found again, allegedly, um, but it disappeared. And for me... That's how I write my historical fiction. I'm writing imaginary stories, imagined people on the backdrop of real history. And so when I was writing The Burning Chambers, trying to work out f how to explain what was at issue between the Huguenots, the French Protestants, and the Catholics in the 16th century, why the wars of religion started, why they were so vicious. Having a missing relic was a terribly good way to tell that story because, of course, the power of relics was hugely at a pointed issue between the Huguenots and the Catholics. And so for me, it was being in that church reading the interpretation on the wall, some of which is obviously really skewed one way rather than the other, but thinking, so who did take that shroud? And when did they take it? And why did they take it? And what if the one that was then put back was not the actual one? Does that contain grace? Mm. Does Would it matter to the people who came to worship at that shroud? And so I love this church because there's great beauty in it, great history in it, great art in it, mm. which you would be able to <laughs> interpret in a much more eloquent way than I can. But for me, it's about filling the pews with imaginary characters, looking at the art that we can see now and thinking, 
wow, I wonder what it looked like then, you know, hundreds of years ago. Absolutely. I mean, these edifices, that's what they thats what they are. They're sort of vessels for people, but they're vessels for art. And I think what's so extraordinary about looking at medieval churches, why I love them so much, <laughs> is because they are these complete artworks. They are buildings, bricks, mortar, but they're full of so many other things, stained glass, wall paintings, as you mentioned. Okay. We'll, yeah. we'll talk a bit about the wall, wall paintings. But the relics, and they are um, they are a bone of contention. They're such an important source of art in the medieval period. We forget, you know, now you'll get a, um, like something like Salvador Mundi, the Leonardo, will sell for millions and millions of pounds. Yeah. If we go back to the to the thirteenth, fourteenth, fifteenth century, it's relics that are changing hands for that sort of money. Yes, That's exactly. The fine art, exactly isn't it? right. That is a brilliant way of putting it. And the thing that, of course, is complicated to modern um, eyes, I suppose, and modern um, emotion, is that we logically now can say, well. If all of the relics of, say, the True Cross were the True Cross, you know, this old thing that <laughs> it would go around, around the world, the world you know, all yeah. the rest of it. <laughs> but what is so interesting about the Shroud of Caduin is that when it was tested in the 1930s, it was found to be of Muslim provenance and it was found to be of 12th century provenance. So it doesn't obviously necessarily mean that it had been touched by grace however we interpret what a relic is and why it's got its power. But the idea that it is this beautiful thing that was saved out of Antioch and brought to Toulouse and housed there, does, that doesn't detract from its beauty at all, mm. what we believe about its power. Mm. And that is one of the things that I love, the idea. Well, so it is authentic. Of course it's authentic. But it's, it's an artwork and it's had its, it's own artwork. little gallery built. That's Let's right. say it's That's the, the exactly little apse right. gallery. You know? And it's been transported across countries yeah. and yeah. exhibited. And I think this is the, the connection we don't make. And, and you're right, there's an awful lot of fear of looking at relics because of the superstition. And in fact, that's what your novel looks into, this, this relationship with relics. But the way I like to describe it to my students, because they think, God, a bit of bone, a bit of yeah. something that somebody's yeah. touched. What's so brilliant about that? There's, there's two layers. On the one hand, they're beautiful art objects, exactly. beautiful objects. On the other hand, if we think ourselves into the imaginations of these these Roman Catholic people who are venerating relics, to them, this is how I've always described it, <laughs> it's a fast track ticket to the best seats in heaven. Exactly. Because if you're holding, I've said this before, but if you're holding the toe of St. Sebastian on the Day of Judgment, when his body is all put back together <laughs> yeah, yeah. in perfection, <laughs> you're, you've got the toe, yeah, yeah. so you're on the front yeah, yeah. row. Yeah, yeah. And it's so yeah. Funny, but actually, this is that we're sort of making something funny out of what is a deep held belief system. And this is something you yes. looked at, isn't it? It's something I looked at, but also I think the thing is, you know, The, the Burning Chambers is the first of four novels. Mm. It's a sequence that covers 300 years. It's a Romeo and Juliet story of a, one Catholic family, one Protestant family, a Huguenot family, a feud that lasts 300 years. It is about a missing relic. It's about betrayal. It's about love. It's about diaspora. It's about how you create the thing that you call home when you're suddenly forced from your home and often thousands of miles away. And within that, so it's not a book about the wars of religion, mm. but of course that is the backdrop to it. And I am very interested in wars of religion and faith because, of course, as we know, they are very rarely about faith. They at least not only about mm -hmm. faith. Mm -hmm. um, they are about power and influence and the structure of religion rather than direct communication, what one might feel if one shuts one's eyes and prays or looks up or, or however we interpret these things. So the thing about relics within that and the possession of that is 
there are definitely, of course, devout people for whom that means something deeply profound. There are also people who are manipulating that common emotion, mm -hmm. shall we say, for their own benefit. And within the novel, I have precisely that. You know, if if we get a replica of this and the people still believe it's the real one, then does it matter? And I was I'm very interested in all of those things. And also this sense of relics. They became a lot of wonderful art was destroyed by the Huguenots. Exactly. Because they resented this sense of the relic, the manipulation of people, the dishonesty of it as they saw it. And there, you know, a very big pointed issue, of course, as you know, was the brand of Huguenotism that was developing at that point, and it became more austere than it was maybe to start with, was, you know, salvation by grace alone, mm. that you are saved because you're saved, mm -hmm. uh, because that is your direct communication with God, um, not because of a relic or because you pay for your mass, you know, and all of those charges of simony and all of these things. And so I am interested in all of that yeah. um, and how that plays out and the destruction of places of great beauty um, within the wars of religion. You know, I write about the massacre in Toulouse in May 1562 and a great deal of beautiful work was destroyed. It always is. We see it in our times. This is something I, I was asked recently. If you could go back in history and change one thing, what would you do? And of course, I sort of said, well, you can't because it's a spider's web and yeah, everything yeah. feeds back. But one thing that is obviously a regret for medieval historians is the destruction of artworks. Yes. But in a way, their destruction is part of the story, isn't it? And what you're doing is you're telling a human story that's born out of buildings and objects. And, and that's what I love so much about your work. But there is something very um, interesting, I think, about this particular building, because it is it is touched by the changes that are taking place around it, but it, it retains so much of its early art and, and yes. design, doesn't yes. it? Yes. Is that why it fascinates you too? Yes, it fascinates me because I, I like the untended spaces. Yeah. I like them better. So when I love Toulouse, as a, although I, I mostly am connected with Carcassonne, a lot of the Burning Chambers is in Toulouse because that's where the history was and I wanted to put my imagined people in in the history. Um, and so, and I spent a lot of time in Toulouse and I wrote quite a lot of the book um, there. And I went round everywhere, of course, yeah. many, many, many times, like you, you know, I, you have the best job ever. You know, I, you always are popping up somewhere wonderful. And but I can think, you see yeah, the excitement in my face? I can. Day. You know, you always look so, so excited and I feel that the same. Like, yeah, ah, I mean, um, but, we'll have to go travelling together. Yeah, no, we, I think, we really I don't will. think there'd be any work done. That no. would be my fear about constant this. Constant chat. Constant and chat excitement. and bars, and, um, which would obviously be great. Um, but it's for me, so when I go to the Basilica, which I love, but it's silent for me as a writer. The voices don't speak to me in there. When I go to the uh, Cathedral Saint-Étienne, um, where I have had to put one of my characters, it's silent for me. It's beautiful and I could admire it, but I'm admiring it as me, Kate, not me, writer. Mm. Um, when I go into the Église du Tour, I start immediately to hear the whispering. But that's the thing. And it's because it's a little bit mm. forgotten. It's not a popular church in the same sort of way. It didn't get all the money. Um, it, and those are the stories that interest me more. And then I feel that I can put somebody there because when I go into that particular church and you walk around and it... it the light falls amazingly. You know, in the afternoon, there's a kind of diamonds fall almost on that south wall of that mural of, of the Tree of Jacob. And you know, because this is what you do. But when I, as a novelist, go in there, 
I just feel that shiver. Whereas some of the perfect places that are really retained mm. in their glory, they just don't speak to me as a writer. There are some there are some problems at the moment with the renovation of French churches in particular. There's certainly something different about travelling in France and looking at their heritage sites because, you know, we sort of make them beautifully preserved and tourist attractions. Whereas in France, you can go to a very well-known um, church and it will be derelict in places or bits okay. of work will yeah. be done. And and if they do go into renovation, they will whitewash or they will do some quite drastic and terrifying looking conservation. And, um, and I think that this is it when you find the right place and when it's got that tangible history but we have the same thing in Britain as well don't we you can go to country churches are my favourite yeah, little yeah, tiny yeah, yeah, village yeah. churches that are a thousand years old and have always been there and it is that idea that these places are focal points for people's lives people are born there buried there married there you know the whole life history of thousands of years of people plays out in these spaces exactly and that that's it for me that's why in the end I chose a building and I chose a church because I do always you know, I all, I always head for the church. Mm. Mm. Well, you know, I, that that's the thing. I feel that I, I'm more likely to learn the sort of town or village somewhere is by walking in those spaces. And, of course, the thing that is very different, of course, in France from, from the UK is that the graveyards and the churches are separate. Mm. Um, so a village church um, in England which is the churches I know best more than anywhere else. Um, my local village church of Fishbourne, where I grew up. Oh, you actually got... Oh, my yeah, God. Oh, you've yeah. got loads of history. You've got the Roman villa as well. We've got the Roman villa. We've got the cathedral. <laughs> we've got, you know... But, of course, we, you know, we all went to Guides and Brownies yeah. the first Sunday of every month. And, and we had to walk across the fields because the church hall was still on the other side of the Reed Mace and the marshes. Um, and the there they are, all the gravestones, and they look out over the sea and the estuary and you walk around and you see those names and of course when I first went to France and was visiting France and was thinking about it that was a very different sort of story because of course it was the mostly the uh, sort of the commemoration on the floors of the naves and places are uh, for wealthy benefactors rather than the people who were the parish you know the church warden or whatever and because the graves are not with the church there is a separation of those two things and I think that's really significant and in fact actually this is something that I find so fascinating about church studies in general whenever I travel and I, I'm the same as you I go straight for the church but if you there's a real historic reason why English churches and cathedrals look the way they do in comparison to French ones, which is that um, in p most parts of France, there was continual Christianity bubbling away right the way through from, from sort of Constantine 312. And um, in their little towns and cities, they would put a church in that would fit in around the existing buildings. So it would often be much more vertical, much more upright ah, and much yeah, more yeah. built right around. Right in the centre. Exactly. Whereas in England, because there was a break of a few hundred years with the yeah. pagan Anglo-Saxons, <laughs> when the monasteries came back, they were often in quite remote places on riverside, surrounded by countryside so monasteries and churches in England tend to sprawl outwards they're fatter and longer and they have That's their so church yeah they yeah, have their yeah. graveyards around them but they also have much more green space around yes, them yes. and I think that's something that you really notice yeah you really do in France how interesting and <gasps> and I think I think that the reason that I love the the Eglise du Tour is that it is Toulouse is not an... Uh, when I use the word urban, that gives completely the wrong impression of Toulouse. But it is an incredibly urban church in that 
it's just in a line of buildings. There you go. And you it's know, the there's front, no it's the front that you yeah. see. You don't see the front anything you see. Else. I mean, yeah. of course, you know, you can get in the back and there is a bit of an alleyway. And obviously, because it's one of my books, people are running in and out and chasing each other down alleyways. <laughs> well, alleyways um, are for. That in is what alleyways are for. <laughs> Everyone knows. But at the front, I mean, I don't think I know another church that is simply built in mm. to the facade of the street in that same sort of way and has survived. Um, and that, that that is one of the things that makes it such a magical place to go. And also, I think the fact that the interpretation, because it's, you know, not, um, hasn't really been modernised quite in that sort of way, it's very interestingly partial. So there is, there's different types of script, handwriting or, you know, typewriter writing. Um, that It's not all beautiful, you know, lovely uh, notices on the wall that all match one another. <laughs> it's all a bit, you know, and... I find that rather wonderful as well um, because you can just, I, you know, I immediately start to think, I wonder who wrote that, what they were like mm. and, you know, all of that sort of thing. Um, but I think it's also that the the chapels at the back, you know, the east, they are very highly decorated and painted and they are like, they're to English eyes, they are very ornate, possibly, mm. as you, you know, garish. Garish, yeah. Garish rooms. Mm. Um, and you think, you know, what, would make one person go to this chapel rather than that chapel. Well, that's it. That's the other thing that fascinates me about this church is that it has a double apsidal east end, which is really quite rare. Yeah. But it's got two some, two, two chapels, one to Notre Dame, one to the, the Virgin. And there's this wonderful statue, isn't there, that was originally on the gatehouse and has been moved inside and it dominates the space. It's what you see. So you've got this idea, and it's wood as well, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. So yeah. again, you know, different mediums, different different things going on in this space. And then I think the other chapel is dedicated to her mother, isn't it? Yes, to, to, Anne. to Anne. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you've got a sort of real celebration of motherhood and females in this space. Females. But the thing that is so sinister, in a way, about the, the Statue of Mary, which is wood, which is wonderful, and it's called Our Lady of the Ramparts, but it is essentially, um, the interpretation is about being grateful to the Mother of God for saving the city from the Protestant threat. And 4,000 people died in the massacre in Toulouse. Um, and it's a very, you know, there's a very famous um, uh, Voltaire comment about the nature of Catholic processions and how often Catholic processions happened and that essentially they are giving thanks for the massacre of thousands and thousands of their fellow Frenchmen. And it's thought that possibly Voltaire was referring to the Toulouse massacre in 1562. Nobody's quite sure, but he did travel down to the south and will have come across. So the thing is, I think it's a beautiful statue. Mm. But for me, because I'm essentially on the Huguenot side here, um, it also sends a shiver down my spine because that, that awful thing when you look at something that evokes a reaction of pleasure because it is beautiful and beautifully carved... And then you realize why it's there. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. Well, this is this is something I absolutely adore about this particular novel you've written is that there's so many things that are specific to the time and the place, but they are broader themes. I mean, the way you deal with uh, refugees and the movement mm. and the dislocation of people, like you say, the diaspora is touching and relevant today. But also this idea of um, the art as an image of power and oppression mm. is hugely relevant. If we're mm. looking today at things like the roads <laughs> conflict, yes. discussion, you're right. I mean, this, this statue has been misappropriated appropriated in a way and relocated for the, by those in power as a sign of, of defeat. But um, in a way, that's why I love art, because these things are catalogues of history that have yeah, unfolded yeah. in front of them. And I've always said, you know, if these things could speak to us, if these objects could tell us what they have seen, yes, they, yes, would, yes. they were witnesses. Yes, they were witnesses. And of course, you know, Toulouse um, was a, a very, very Catholic city. Um, and, you know, there were safe cities given um, after the Edict of Nantes, as, as you know, and they were, you know, they were set safe cities in La Rochelle being the most famous. But Toulouse w- remained strongly, staunchly Catholic in quite a Huguenot area. And it's it's really hard to, one has to be very careful not to read too much with hindsight into it. But it's a very interesting sort of phenomenon. For me, the Cathar spirit of the Southwest, the spirit that meant that during the Second World War, 30,000 of the 40,000 French Jewish people who were saved were saved through the networks of the Southwest. Mm. The fact that Montpellier, Béziers, there were significant Huguenot communities there were quite a lot of Huguenots who travelled, all of, most all of them that came uh, to South Africa, which is where my novel sequence of novels ends. A lot of them came from Provence and Aquitaine and Nîmes, and so the Southwest. So there is a non-conformist spirit in the Southwest, which persists, I would say, to this day, but not to lose. Ah. Not to lose. It's so interesting Catholic as well, City. even on a sort of a practical uh, level with the architecture, because when I was looking into the church, it's described as Southern Gothic. Mm-hmm. And I find that such a wonderful yeah, term. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could totally see the contrast between Northern Gothic and, and the wonderful things that are happening at Saint-Chapelle and you know all the different churches that, that unfold around Paris. The Southern version is so completely different the so way you different. look at it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even yeah, yeah. just looking at that facade, there's I mean, the, the, the hexagonal towers... There is a sort of simplicity, yes. but also you can feel that it's touching other worlds. It's sort of looking yeah. south, yeah. southwards, 
maybe over to Northern Africa, there's even an influence there, isn't there? But it's it's certainly a world that's different to what we'd associate with Northern France. Absolutely. And th- that sort of sense, you know, the different language that, you know, the, back, you know, again, Voltaire always saying that he couldn't understand a word anyone said once yeah. he went down there, um, you know, because of those, you know, Occitan, obviously, and Provencal further over. And obviously, you'll get, you know, Catalan once you go further down. And they're, you know, they're a family, but they are, they are different languages. And I think the thing is that, you know, I, I I once said this, I was concerned when I started to write about the Cathars in my novel Labyrinth. Mm. I did think, well, I wonder how the people of Carcassonne are going to take to this English woman turning up and writing their history, as it were. Um, and it was very interesting. Finally, I got the courage to ask somebody in a signing, you know, we're doing a bilingual event and, you know, all of that. And I, I finally asked someone and she looked at me and said, better an English woman than a Parisian. Huh? <laughs> what? Well, this is There it. you go. They Honestly, I mean, they're it, not fret that you know that it's not the same sensibility. It's not. It's not, and it is really intriguing. I mean, we have our, our equivalents in England, I suppose. North South divide exists, but really, mm. I lived in Yorkshire for eight years. I know this, but but it is completely different when you travel down and Carcassonne, even even more so. But I love this building because it really does seem to um, to sit on the edge of worlds, but it sits on the edge of history, and and your novel has breathed a new life into this space that I hadn't thought about. For me, I mean, I adore things like the 14th century mural. You could never appreciate how rare these wall paintings are because they're so often, we're the same, you know, I'm sure you do it. If your house looks a bit tired, you just give it a lick of paint and paint over it. Same with wall paintings, you know, when they start to look a bit outdated or out out of fashion, stick a whitewash And it would have done because because it's quite naive. I mean, I'm not using that as an art No, it is naive. But, you know, they're not... it's not a work of art. It's not a work of art. <laughs> um, you know, it's a representation of all the branches of the tree of Jacob. Um, and it's flat. It is. That's and how I think of it. holding these banderoles, aren't they, with yeah. inscriptions on. And, yeah. and they're sort of a teaching aid, but they're, they're, they're supposed to make you think about the history of Christianity and the Bible. And it's, a, it's very interesting, isn't it, that the church of that period... It being such the centerpiece, essentially the Old Testament, you know, and that I find really interesting because, of course, we're used to that in stained glass. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I, I just think I went in there the first time I saw it, and I thought, "What is that?" <laughs> you know, because it just seemed so out of character with everybody, everything else in that particular space. Um, the other thing that I do love is the what I think of as the island of the altar. Uh-huh. And it kind of, for me, almost looks like a pen in that it's got sort of black wrought iron all the way around it, you know, on all four sides. Yeah. So it's kind of like going into a garden. You open the gate and you go, well, obviously I don't do that because I'm not, uh, you know, officiating <laughs> be up there. And there is the altar, kind of marooned. Mm-hmm. And it feels to me almost looks like a widow's walk. It's been described as a floating altar. It looks like it's is that floating. What they, yeah. and, and I mean, this is, again, one of these strange things. That if, if you go to the church where William the Conqueror is buried. He's in a similar sort of floating section yeah. in the middle. And it is, I don't know if it's a French thing because of the fact that you're coming in from the, the street, uh, but it is really a, an unusual space. What I think is so interesting about this as well is the history continues to fold out within this space because then the big paintings, the painting of the, the martyrdom of yes. the saint is yes. actually 19th century when, yeah, the, when yeah. the saint was martyred in 250 yeah, that, AD. That's right, yes. <laughs> and, it, you know, it, it's, it, should we say it's very much, you know, we would call it obviously Victorian yeah. uh, view of what that might have been, that sort of martyrdom. And there it hangs in like, an, a, I mean, cra- crazy painting. I, I can't say it's a painting that speaks very warmly to me. Um, but no, and I love the fact that that cheek by jowlness of this particular church is okay. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and the weirdness of all the bits and pieces around it and the fact that um, 
I've I have been to some services there because I I can't resist. Mm. Um, but they're not. They feel as if they are a congregation that is aging together. Really, it do, you know. Whereas you know, I've been to services in the Basilica, which is quite a lot of tourists, as you'd imagine, and Saint Etienne is the people of Toulouse, mm. and that sense of Sunday best, and people dressed up and boys in suits and girls in dresses, mm. you know that that sort of thing. So you feel there is you know there is a, a live community of worship in the cathedral, and there's a visiting and but also Catholic uh, community in the Basilica. And there are many other wonderful churches in Toulouse. I mean, we haven't begin, you know, <laughs> begun to scratch the surface of how many... I mean, it has, there's a lot of churches in Toulouse. Um, but this one, it, it, it's, like, it's like a seaside town. Yeah. You know. Trapped and, in time. I, I've yeah. just come back from the Isle of Wight and I was just having this conversation about places that have so much history. And, and there is a slowness. A, a speed at which these places evolve that just feels slower. And and the idea that, you know, the saint was dragged by this bull in 250 AD yeah, outside yeah. and then yeah, 1,500, 600, 700 years later, time is collapsing because the same art, oh, yeah, same, yeah. the same idea is still informing the art in the 19th century. And, and the name is still there. And, out. of course, right opposite the, the, the door, the western door, is uh, the Rue des Pénitentiaires. And, it, you know, Toulouse suddenly became a sort of city of mendicant orders. And there were, you know, the, the white friars over there and the black friars over there and the grey friars over there. And I often have somebody or something happening in that street. So in another one of my novels, The Winter Ghosts, the bookseller who has the story taken from the cave, the ghost story from the cave, is in there. In Citadel, which is the Second World War one. He is there, you know. He he's part of the you know the story, and in this one, there again is a book, bookshop because obviously all the best stories start in bookshops. <laughs> and I realised that that again, it's a it's not a pretty street, and the remnants of that particular order are not very visible there. There are other amazing things, you know, the College de Foire and all of these just round the back, but the street isn't. But it's the fact that it is so close to the front door of the church. And although the Rue de Tour, you know, it's a, a main street between Place du Capitole and the Basilica Saint-Sernin, but it's it's still not. It's just like you feel that it it's the emotion of the street mm. is as it would have been. And I love this idea of the connection with the bookshop. I mean, this is what I was loving so much about Burning Chambers. But the, the idea that you have people in a physical space that are technically bound together by Catholicism. Mm. And then that there are bookshops where ideas are exchanged. And that is every single individual viewpoint and philosophical viewpoint all coming out of yeah, a building. Yeah. And yet they're right face to face with each other. Uh, it, I just love that. And it comes out so well in the novel. I, I cannot tell you how much I'm enjoying it. I'm Thank very you. close to finishing it. Um, I, I I'm so glad you chose this building. Oh, I would have loved to have explored the architecture even more because there's so many things we didn't say about the single aisle, which is quite rare, and also the the, the crenellated top. It's such a beautiful um, example, but but also such a homely and sweet and human yes. example, which is yes. why I'm just so pleased you chose it. Thank you. And um, honestly, complete pleasure. We will have to go travelling together. Yes, and I, do I, a... I, I'm already planning this. You know, research trip for the next book. I'm starting Paris, then I'm in Amsterdam. Well, my next book's going to be set on mainland France, ah, so we might have to do this. Well, we, yeah, this Ooh. would be great. And this would be good because as we have been talking, uh, everybody will have noticed that I don't know the names for anything. 
but you know the names for all of it. And it's bizarre, given I have spent 15 years odd writing fiction inspired by history, medieval history mostly, and then now up to the 16th century and I'm going further. It is a very strange thing that even though I have all the guidebooks and I do the research and I can put it in the book, I cannot retain the technical information about buildings. And I've tried to work it out because I have a good memory in normal ways. And I realise now that I think there's something about if I start to understand it properly, I remove myself from the heads of the made-up characters that I'm writing about who would not necessarily have known those things. It's very possible. I mean, the other thing is that architecture is a very strange area. And I remember my first ever uh, session on architecture, it was like science, it, all the technical terminology. And and you're right, I mean, it sort of stripped these buildings back to shapes and dimensions. But actually, um, once, once it's cracked it's quite simple you can you can see yeah. patterns and and i actually love being in um in ch- buildings that have evolved where you can see where one period ends and the other one you know well you see this is off. why we have to go together mm. so it will just be such a brilliant <laughs> shortcut for me and i'll be able to go so Doctor, I'll tell me what is that? Geek. Absolutely, I need geek. a go-to gig. This is what I've been missing all oh, of my I'm writing life. Our holiday <laughs> right. Well, listen, this has been an absolute pleasure. You have got so many more exciting things that you're rushing off to. I'm very aware. I am deeply honoured to be with you, and I'm really grateful to you for your time, Art Detective listeners. I'm sure you've absolutely loved this, Kate. If they want to follow you on Twitter, what's your Twitter handle? It's at Kate Moss. Nice and That's simple. it. <laughs> at, yeah, I and have a tick. And I have an E you do, and on the you, end and of my name. Every now it. and again, I get a tweet meant for the other Kate Moss. And, <laughs> it, and they often say things like, the one and only Kate Moss. And I have to stop myself going, no, no, I'm here also. <laughs> <laughs> You've got the E. I've You've got, got the, the E. e. At the end. Um, and uh, The Burning Chambers is out now. It's absolutely wonderful. I think everybody should be reading it over the summer. It's a perfect read. And thank you once again. Been it's wonderful. been a pleasure. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. These days, having versatile clothing you can wear anywhere is a must. That's why American Giant makes all sorts of versatile any-weather staples, hoodies, jackets, and more. Whether you're buying a gift or stocking your closet, you'll find just what you need. And it's all made right here in the USA. Find your new wardrobe staples at American-Giant.com. And get 20% off your order when you use code ANYSTYLE24 at checkout. That's 20% off at American-Giant.com. Promo code ANYSTYLE24.